Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Adi Iyengar. Hello. Alan Wyma. Hello, hello. Sasha Wolf. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and it's Yiming Chen. Yiming, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Let everybody know who you are and why you're famous. Hi, everyone. I'm Yiming, and I won't say I'm famous, but I'm a Elixir developer from China. I'm now working at Tubi. And uh, yeah, that's it. Cool. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Well, we came across your article that talked about how you discovered a seven-year-old performance issue in Elixir, which sounds really interesting. And I don't know that we really talk so much about getting into the internals or the guts or tracking down these kinds of issues. Usually it's more, hey, here's how you do this thing with Elixir or Phoenix. So yeah, do you want to kind of just tell us a little bit of the story of how you found this issue? Yeah, it's an interesting issue. So at first we didn't expect to like deep dive into Elixir and find this kind of performance issue from Elixir itself, because we always think Elixir or Erlang OTP is always stable and optimized already. And so we started from performance issue in our applications and we thought it was some kind related to our caching policy or some kind of performance issue like that. We didn't do any caching at first. So we thought if our performance is not good, maybe we need to add more caching to solve it. But finally, we deep dive down to the core of Elixir's rejects module and found the performance issue. So that was very surprising. Yeah, that's interesting. So how do you start tracking down an issue inside of Elixir? Um, so we didn't start tracking issues inside Elixir. So we have this API server written in Myru. It's an, another web framework other than Plug. Uh, based, it's based on Plug, but uh, it's not the Phoenix web framework that everyone's familiar with. So we started debugging or providing the performance within this framework. And uh, we started using like timer.tc, this default function provided by Erlang, and also library called eFlate. So it can generate the flame graph for the, for the application, for the core stack. So we can see how much time we spend in each functions. So we can see Oh, this function is costing like uh, 200 milliseconds and uh, this another function is costing 100 milliseconds. 
So we started from there and uh, to see which function is our bottleneck. And then we find that, oh, this function, which is fetching the payload from, from the S3 server is costing us the most time in the whole API request session. So we started to adding Redis cache to, to the S3 request. So we saw that by adding this Redis cache, so we can avoid fetching the payload from S3. So we hope that this would improve our performance. But the when we push this change, when we push the Redis server to production, the results was very surprising because we saw the P99, which is the key, key indicator for our performance, actually increased a lot. If I remember correctly, the P99 increased actually by 20 to 25%, which is quite surprising. So yeah, then we started debugging and uh, finally found the Elixir uh, performance issue. What was the tool you said you used, eFlame? Yeah, eFlame. So okay. it's flame started with an e. So how did you first like notice that like your P99s were bad? Do you what's like your monitoring setup? Did you like somebody looked at the dashboard at some point in time and just noticed? Wait, the P99s look weird. Uh yeah. So we go? use we use Datadog for all of our monitorings, and uh, we have an internal library which we can call like it's like timer. TC function, but uh, with the Datadog integration within it, so we can call a function inside it, and it would send the send the time spent in this function to Datadog, and so we can see like so Datadog we will generate the histogram to show the P99, the average latency, the median, etc., and also other metrics like how many requests per second and the uh, things like that. Yeah, it's really interesting that no one found this till now. He said it's been seven years and this has been part of the uh, so the source code since the very beginning, right? Yeah, that's that's quite a <laughs> that's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean it's a combination, like I mean you have to use it in a scale a big enough scale to notice it and also have like enough monitoring tools, I guess, to really pin, you know pinpoint what is slow. But yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, I think that's the listeners may be wondering what the issue it is. So it's actually a very simple issue. So maybe let me explain that first. So it's a issue inside the rejects uh, replace function. So we usually use that to replace a piece of patterns inside a, a string. So maybe we say we have three A's, we need to replace that to three B's. And uh, then the rejects would try to match that pattern inside the target string. And uh, if it finds the pattern, it will replace that uh, substring to the new string. So the issue is like when a substring doesn't exist in, a, in the target string, it will still spend time to try to match every, try to replace the, oh, how to say that? If the substring doesn't exist in the target string, it will still try to scan the whole string, which is costing a lot of time. So the easy fix is to 
say that if we don't find any substring in the target string, then we don't try to scan the whole string and uh, just return false or all the replace failed uh, indicator. Gotcha. So I might be a little bit new, but what is a P99? So it's a short shorthand for 99 percentile. So it's like, it's not accurate to say that your latency is at 500 milliseconds. So because to measure our latencies, we need to say this is an analytical problem because everyone receives a different uh, latency from our web server. So it's like distributed between like zero to one second. So everyone, so maybe someone receives a latency of two milliseconds, but another may receive a latency of one second. So it's uh, like 1,000 requests, but each has different request latency. So we need to analyze the latency as a distribution instead of a one-time off thing. So we need to say what's the medium of the latency that is uh, 50 percentile, which is P50. And uh, we need to see the 90 percentile and the 95 percentile and uh, finally 99 percentile and uh, maybe even more like uh, 99.9 or yeah. Like in a nutshell, you could say that the P99 says that 99% of the requests are faster than this one. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, because if you think about a web page loading and in a modern application, I assume you have many API requests. So if you do the calculation, you, you will see that when loading a web page, if you have many API requests, you would highly, you would be highly possible that you would encounter a P99. Gotcha. In the, in the best case, you would hope to have like a P99, which is very close to also your median, which means that you have like a pretty good average response, like a pretty good response time mm -hmm. consistency. But if a P99 is high, yeah, then something is amiss in, in like certain conditions, which I mean, <laughs> in the in the case of, of this uh, this article, this blog post was actually in Elixir itself, like in the regular expressions module. So that's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, so the, the interesting we found that after we pushed the Redis cache, so the P99 went up, but the median, the, the median actually went down. So the median decreased, but the P99 increased. So I thought, how is that possible, right? If a change that, if this Redis cache changed how we, how the application behave, it should increase all the latencies, like P99 should go up and the, the median should go up as well. But actually, the behavior was like the medium went down and the P99 went up. So I started wondering why why was that? So one possible case I came up was that there is actually some part of our logic which is slow for some kind of request, but actually fast for the other request. So the mm -hmm. slower request actually got much slower but actually faster request, which was faster before. After this change, this faster request became faster, but the slower request became slower. So that could explain why why the P99 went up, but the medium went down. Did you find out in detail why like the P99 actually went up? So, I mean, 
you wrote in your blog post that your initial assumption was that the S3 request was slow, and that of course turned out to not be the truth. But still, then I, I wouldn't expect that the P99 goes up when you have a Redis cache accessing uh, from which you can load the files, right? So did you figure out why why that even increased the P99 scenario? Yeah, the reason is actually a bit complicated because the S3 request was actually the bottleneck for some kind of request. In this kind of request, we don't do, we don't do any rejects replacing. So we didn't call this uh, rejects function that has performance issue. So in this kind of request, the, the IO to S3 was actually the bottleneck. So we added the Redis cache and it actually reduced the fetching from S3, the latency from S3 to basically zero. And for this kind of request, it uh, they would be much faster due to the Redis cache. But for other kind of requests where we call the rejects or replace, so for this kind of request, it's hitting the function that had the issue. So it's actually kind of like the CPU bound action. So for this kind of action, their latency went up because we fetched the response from S3 faster and uh, then call the reject or replace more often, and uh, which increased the CPU load and uh, which reduced the CPU processing time. And uh, yeah, that's why the P99 went up. Okay, so what did you do when you like then found out that the issue was actually with like the regex.replace function? Like what, what's the story after that? I think after I found out that uh, the story was kind of simple. I just pulled the Elixir code and uh, changed one line or two rejects or replace functions and uh, submit a pull request. And what exactly did you change? So... I mean, you said it was like a simple change, but basically, so what was the simple change you made? So we have also another function called reject store match. So it's like uh, matching the substring in the target stream. So it's like basically calling this match function first before the replace function, uh, of course, inside the replace function. But once the match returns true, then we won't do the heavy lifting in the replace function. If there is a match, then we do the scan and all the things in the replace. And like before, it always did the, did the scan, even like when there was no match, right? Basically, that's it. I'm kind of curious though, like for me, I try to trust people that wrote these functions before. I mean, like you said, this is this seven-year-old bug, or this is something that's been there for many, many years. Was there any like worry about are you doing the right thing or you just think that this seems to be correct so you just give it a try? Like what was the process in your mind for submitting something like this? Like I said, every time I I look at somebody else's code who's been doing for things a lot longer than me, I always get worried. Like maybe I don't know something that uh, this part has to be here, right? What what happened through your mind? Yeah, I think uh, first of all, I think Elixir itself has a excellent test coverage. So when I check the rejects text .exs file, I saw a lot of tests covering 
uh, many cases. So I feel safe to modify the rejects uh, module. If I change anything, I just run the test and see if anything fails. And that's also why I love the Elixir community. The Elixir itself and the many third-party libraries all have very excellent test coverage. And uh, second, I think I trust Elixir, the reviewers like Jose and uh, many others, they would see uh, if this change would uh, affect uh, wider scope and uh, see if we, uh, it's really worth it to accept it into Elixir itself. That's a very interesting question you asked, Alan, by the way, too. I mean, the I, I guess from what Yiming said to add to that, I guess from like a more, I guess, imposter syndrome perspective, right? Like not feeling confident in like what you're doing is correct. I have, I have had problems with that, but then I realized, you know, I, I when I found the courage to make my first list of contribution, which got rejected, by the way, <laughs> in 2017, the, the response from Jose was like, so positive that I've even though it was wrong he came from a perspective where he could see what I'm trying to trying to do and he had a, this huge comment explaining why it wouldn't work and it only motivated me to keep contributing more in the future and I, I think just to add to what you said the community being so great and testing things so well the culture of the community of, of you know not making someone else feel you know they're new they cannot they, that they cannot contribute it really adds to that whole you know the community feeling people can actually no matter where they are in their careers they can feel free to try to improve the community which is really awesome you know I think what what helps here too is this big focus also on documentation right of like hex docs being built in for example. So what Hextox also makes super easy is like when you look at the documentation, there's also like a button you can click to just jump at the code where this is. And yeah. then like just seeing the code people have written, um, at least for my for my experience, there was a point where I like looked up the open source code and assumed that whoever wrote this must have been like super smart and like I would never be able to compete with somebody like that. But then you look at the code, it's like, it's just code. Like there's no magic there, right? You can understand this. That, that helps in, in realizing that, yeah, you, even even in, in like something su such as the core library, there might be a bug. I mean, I, I also have a contribution to Elixir core, but that's just a typo in one documentation string, <laughs> which are fixed. <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, it's written by humans and humans make mistakes. It's, it's, uh, I, I feel like it, it helps to realize that when, when looking at documentation, looking at code and like spotting small mistakes. Yeah. For having contributed issue. to open source and having written open source libraries, I've written a few. Yeah, it's it's just code and it's written by idiots like me. So go ahead, Yumi. Yeah, I was saying for for this issue I fixed, it feels like a typo inside of a function. Like I just looking at the documentation and say how come the reject store replace could be slow and then click that button, jump to the source code and see oh doing the heavy work here and the not checking if there is actually a substring. Metrics. I'm also kind of curious, like when you did find that we're doing this, that you're doing this heavy computation and then doing the checking, I believe it's like, we were just like, wow, was this developer sleepy or kind of like, what was your, your mindset when you saw this kind of thing? Because to me, like, I look at that and I'm like, oh, what, what was this guy thinking? That's kind of came to my mind. Did, did you have any thoughts like that when you saw this? Yeah, actually, it wasn't me that found this, but so it's all. 
it was our team that worked uh, together in a uh, late afternoon. So because that uh, was why uh, we found this issue and we were using the e-proof library provided by Erlang, which analyzed the real traffic in on our production server. And uh, we saw the result saying that this Elixir door rejects door replace function is costing us the most time. Uh, and then we were wondering how come was that, was I measuring anything wrong? Was I calling this e-proof function in a wrong way like that? So we were doubting ourselves for like finding this, finding this Elixir door rejects door replace function to be the culprit. I do have one more question, right? Was there any upper management involved or was it just you guys that, that saw the issue and fixed it? Was anybody complained to you outside of the group that kind of got you guys looking at this? Not any compliment, I'd say. So we started uh, increasing this because we need to add more functionalities to, our, uh, to this server. So we saw that the P99 wasn't great. So it was like 500 milliseconds. And uh, if we add more functionalities to do more the, more work, so we may increase the P99 even more. So we started optimizing first. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. The reason I bring this up is because uh, I, I do consulting with clients, and sometimes these plugins or things I bring in from outside people, they have issues, and we find it out later on, like how you find out about this. And uh, I have to try to explain, okay, this is what happened. We were using this plugin or we're using this piece of code from somebody else. We thought it's okay, but turns out that there's something that doesn't quite work so well for you but we can fix it, right? Similar to what you did when you submitted a PR. So I've done that quite a few times, but always when it gets found out, immediately, I think a lot of the first emotions of people from the outside is just kind of just complaining, like, how could this happen? Why did these guys not do it? What is, what's wrong with these guys? And I had to try to you know explain, hey, you know, this is open source, right? Things can happen. But the nice part is because it is open source, we can find the issue, we can fix it, and we can solve this problem for everybody. I'm sorry that you ran into this, but this happens, right? That's kind of part of the part of the con, right? Benefit, we get some code we can use. Con is that maybe it doesn't work for every single use case, right? So that's why I was kind of curious if there was an upper management person that kind of came in and was like, what's going on? Why is it so slow? Or, you know, these charts are blowing up or what's going on? The, I think the this kind of performance issue didn't happen because it was open source. I think for closed source, it would also happen. And for closed source, we are in a worse position because we can just jump into the code and uh, find the bugs in others' code. Now, you said that Elixir has a bunch of tests around the regex library. Did you did you break any tests or did you add tests in order to make sure that this doesn't ha- regress in future versions? Or yeah, how, how did that work out? I did break some tests during the fix maybe okay. due to my typo or something, but I fixed them with the guidance from the f- test messages. But I I think I didn't add any tests for this because 
this performance requirement is like non-functional requirement. So mm -hmm. it's a bit hard to add an extra test to cover that. Yeah, depending on like what kind of beefy machine you run this on the test, like just like all of this might just execute faster, right? Then like your test again is <laughs> successful, even though it should not maybe be. Yeah, I can I can see why that would be hard. I have like one more question. You you said that you actually like profiled this in production. Can can we talk a little bit more about like how you used eProf and stuff in production and then how how you output outputted that to some place so it could be inspected? Because I mean I, I've used eProf like locally, like like um, actually looking at that the stuff running locally, but I never tried to use it in a production environment like uh, to, to actually see what happens in my production. And I'm curious how that worked. Yeah, this is definitely a dangerous operation and uh, I would not recommend this to anyone else. Like, so because calling April has a performance penalty and uh, it would definitely increase the latency by, I won't say a lot, but by a bit. So when, so that was when we were a bit desperate because we couldn't find out why the P99 went up, but the median went down, right? So that was before we figured all it out. So we decided to do some performance measuring on production at that point, but then we need to pick a right time. So we picked the, uh, like, the low traffic time uh, during the day. So like the US night time. And uh, that was when the request, uh, we have the fewest requests coming in. And then we uh, got into one of our servers. We have multiple servers for load balancing. So we SSH into one of them in the code eProf of that machine. So hopefully we reduce the uh, impacts on our users by to the minimum. And did, did you have to like, I don't know, push a version of code to production which monitored and measured the interesting code bits? Or did you just like, I mean, you said you just SSH'd onto a server and then enabled eProf, but was there any other change necessary to get like a, a, some nice proper output which actually tells you something interesting, right? Yeah, I, I think we didn't push any code changes. We just change that on production on the fly, another dangerous flag. But that was late afternoon and uh, we we were desperately to figure it out. And uh, so we, I think we called the eProof uh, function in, in the remote console and uh, we also changed some lines of the some modules by re redefining the Okay, so you so you like in the remote console, you actually like re recompiled a few modules. Is, is that what you did? Yes, uh, this okay. is definitely not recommended. Yeah, I, I can see why, but yeah, I was just wondering like like how, how that worked out. And then I assume eProf spit out like some kind of of flock file or something. You then inspected, or or just did you yeah, just read the, the outputs uh, from the remote console and then? We save the output in a file and uh, download it to our local and start yeah. the measure. Yeah, that, that, that answers my question. Thank you. I'm also kind of curious, are you guys actually using OTP24 in your, your code right now? Yeah, we have multiple services. So we haven't used uh, 24 for this service, but we transferred another service to 24. 
and uh, so on, like 30% performance increase. That's what I was curious about because I did see you're using compression, right? And so I would think maybe compression may get some JIT optimization. So I was curious about if you had any uh, feedback on that for your own project because everybody, I mean, WhatsApp says they got like 30% also, I think 25 or 30%. I was just, just curious about that. Yeah, uh, for this service, it won't be that much, I think, because it's now actually a pure I.O. bound service. And I won't uh, say JIT would help a lot. So are there any tips you'd like to give our listeners, like anything you learned from this and you think is interesting to know? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson, lesson is how we measure our apps or how we profile our apps. Because if you, if you remember our first measuring, uh, it was actually on my local. I just ran the test server and uh, called the eFlame function inside our local environment. And the payload I used for that test was actually quite small, which is actually the IO bound kind of request, which would indeed became faster after the Redis cache improvement. But actually what we need to find is the CPU bound request, which would use much larger payload so I didn't cover that in my first round of, of testing, which lead to the dangerous operations of our production environment. So I, I would highly recommend that when we profile something, we need to really cover every cases to ensure we really find the root cause. And it makes sense to me when you, when you test stuff locally, you of course by default use like the 100 megabyte edge case scenario, but just quickly type something up. So yeah, actually testing with data from production, from real users to cover all the, 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 the edge cases makes sense to me. So how much faster did things go? Oh, it was actually a lot faster after the Redis cache improvement and uh, this rejects uh, improvement. Uh, we, our P99 went from 500 milliseconds to like 20 milliseconds. So it was a lot. Nice. Do you know in which version your fix got released? So is it already released in the Elixir version? And in which version is that? Yes, definitely in 1.12, but I, I'm not sure if it's in 1.11 or not. Yeah, so, so I guess if you're still using 1.11 and do a lot of regex replace on large pay, payloads, better upgrade your Elixir version, right? <laughs> In our application, we didn't actually upgrade because we need to do a lot more testing if we upgrade the Elixir version. So we just call the reject.match function before we call uh, reject.replace inside our code. I did right, see you're working on, sorry, I, I did see you're working on some other libraries that you wanted to kind of promote. I was curious about the Promox, right? Because you did reference mocks and I'm just looking through it. So this is also strictly based on when you want to mock something in uh, in testing, right? Can you talk a little bit more about Promox? Yeah, so Promox came out in from our my recent project. So it's like mocks, but mocks is for mocking behavior uh, functions. But we also have protocols, which is another way to achieve polymorphism in Elixir. 
So I think Elixir is missing a library for us to easily mock these kind of prox protocol based functions like in in numberable dot count or some callback functions like that. So I made promos to help that process. Yeah, it's and maybe I, it's because I use protocols for a very specific purpose. I don't see a use case where I would want to mock an implementation of a protocol. Um, the behavior, you know, it makes sense because, you know, it's a new module that you define in test environment, like for example, mocking your HTTP request. Um, protocol, you still call the, the protocol and then send it, uh, you know, a data that implements the protocol. So you have to explicitly send that data. So if, if you can uh, give an example of a use case where you'd be using this, uh, I might be able to uh, make more sense out of it. Yeah, so here is an example from my project. So I was building this kind of data moving uh, functions. So we need to move some files from one place to another. And we also need to create some database records for, uh, for the new files. So the, this new record is also based on some older records. So it's like a, a, also a data move moving thing. So I defined this proc protocol called mover or run. So it would receive a mover as the data uh, structure and also the source. So where the data needs to be moved from and also the destination. So where the data needs to be moved to. So with these three arguments, each implementation will move the data from place A to place, uh, place from source to destination. So we can have, have like file movers and also database movers. And also maybe more abstract movers, like we need to concatenate two movers. So let's say we need to finish mover A before finish mover B. Like once mover A finish its work, and then we call mover B. So then we can build a complex mover uh, with these basic movers, like putting them together like a Lego uh, blocks. So then it makes sense to mock the mover proc protocol because then we can say uh, in a, another function which calls mover and uh, it will, we can say which response this mock would return and uh, which other response another mock can return. And uh, I'm not sure if this uh, explains the example the best. So I also have another blog post for that. I can share it later. Yeah, that'd be great. So I, I guess it is to test the how, so if your protocol is like very generic, I guess that's polymorphism. It's to test how generic it is. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't used a protocol in a way where the implementation is, like you said, like moving different things. I generally go in, uh, down the route where I define a behavior for the mover, but interesting. Yeah, and uh, this kind of protocol-based mocking can bring us uh, more benefits than behavior-based because, you know, in mocks, you have global mode and also private mode, you need to give a process permission to call this mock, right? 
sorry, in promos, you don't need to do that because all the mockings happens in this this piece of data structure. So each mock contains its expectations and also its uh, its stops. So when we pass a mock to another function and when the protocol function calls it, it will just get the expectations and the stops from this data. And it doesn't need to call another process and to allow other process to access this mock. Right. The only argument for the behavior mock is, I mean, the, the compiler warnings. Uh, it's not that the compilation fails, so it's not that big of a, an argument. Yeah, but that's a fair point. And the protocol is actually also built upon the behavior. So when you define a protocol module, you are also defining the callback functions. So when you define an implementation module, you will also get the compiler warnings when you didn't implement any callbacks. Right, but isn't the implementation definition separate from the, the type, the, the struct for which you are defining implementation? Or the module for which you're defining implementation? Go ahead. Did, did you follow what I said? <laughs> maybe, maybe ask again. Uh, so, yeah, so I... yeah, so when you define a protocol and then you define an implementation, the implementation is uh, can be defined separate from the type for which you're defining the implementation, right? Yes. So okay. the uh, so when you define a protocol, the implementation can be separate from the interface itself. So you are. I think it's actually also true for behaviors. So for behaviors, you are also defining the interfaces. So when you call and call back some kind of function signature uh, in the interface module, you are defining the interfaces. And then in other modules, you are defining calling uh, add behavior. And then you are defining the implementations. So I think they are the same. Yeah, just my, I was just making a small point where you know, uh, since the behavior that you're implementing, you you do add behavior in the module itself, right? Whereas uh, when you do define implementation for a module, you can define the module separately and the implementation separately. Which means if you if you do add behavior in the module but don't write the implementation for the callbacks, you get a warning, right? But if you define a protocol and define a module and not even define the implementation. Then you'll not get the warning again. I yeah, it, I I feel like this. It's more of it. It feels more obvious if you could just do add behavior in the module itself, and it's an easier way to like create like compiler warnings. I think it should be errors, but anyway, compiler warnings. Yeah, I was saying that that same compiler warnings would be emitted by protocols as well. So when you call def implement for a protocol, and uh, you need to implement these callbacks. If you don't, then the same warning, the same compiler warning would be omitted. Right. I'm sorry. I don't think I'm explaining myself correctly, properly. So the implementation is separate from the module, right? The def impel from module in a, to a totally different place. The callback, the behavior is the module attribute of the module itself, right? So it's more it's more contained within the module, whereas implementation has to be explicitly defined for that module. So again, just in my experience, it feels like it's easier to manage behaviors versus implementation if you're looking for compilation warnings 
yeah, it's well, easy to, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I think then you should definitely check out my, the other library I'm working on. It's called Objects. So it's like defining protocols and the implementation, but using the same, like you need to define the uh, implementations, the interfaces you need to implement inside the module. So I think you would prefer I love that. that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Awesome. So what is that what is that library called? So it's objects. So it's like object oriented programming, that object, but with a EX instead nice. of easy. All right. Well, anything else we want to jump on here before we go to picks? Everyone's so quiet. I'm all set. Let's I, do I, some picks. I'll definitely have some more question about objects, but I'll save it for the next for next time when Yemen comes. Okay, sounds good. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right, Sasha, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. Um, so this week, I actually have like a bit more personal thing. Um, quite a while ago, a few years, I came across um, Brené Brown and her audiobook, The Power of Vulnerability. And I've listened to that. And it's like, actually, it's like a course she gave or a workshop. And like, it's a recording of that workshop. And what she does, she's a, a shame researcher. So that people, there are people out there who research shame. And she basically asked the question, like, what do people do who are very happy, who report themselves as very happy? And one thing she came across over and over and over was vulnerability. And um, that's, I've listened to the whole workshop back, back then, and it very much changed how I approach meeting new people, how I, how I approach dealing with friends, how, how, how I view myself. And it made me all around somebody, I, I would say, happier with myself. So I would like to recommend that to everybody to at least give it a listen. There is a TED Talk from her, which is like a compressed version of the audiobook. So if you're not completely sold on that, um, you can watch the TED Talk. But I really can't recommend the book or rather the audiobook enough. And it's really something which which changed how, how I approach things in my life. Cool. Alan, how about you? Do you have some picks for us? Yeah, for me, I, I just picked an interesting article I saw come out from AWS talking about uh, Curl and uh, Hyper. Hyper, I believe, is some uh, library in Rust. But in general, this this whole article is talking about how we need to be in like a safer internet and how a lot of bugs, like Microsoft says, about 70% are all related to memory safety. And I think that's that's quite interesting. Like I said, I've been digging into Rust recently. If you guys keep hearing the past couple of weeks, keep giving Rust picks. And I think that this is you know quite interesting to see that curl, which is something I think that everybody uses, right? Not just the command line, but also the library. There's curls in so many things that you wouldn't even you'd be super surprised on. 
and they're adopting Rust to try to solve some issues of uh, memory safety and trying to decrease bugs. And so I think this is uh, quite interesting to hear what you know people are doing with it. And uh, the Internet Security Research Group is really trying to promote using Rust over other things at the moment, right, because of the safety it provides. So I think this is a pretty interesting uh, article. They also have a link to a presentation, which could be interesting too. Um, so it's one of my picks. And the other one is this software that we're using a little bit of called Ro Rotato. So it's kind of nice if you have some like mock-up or something, you can give like a, give it a little bit of pizzazz, right? When you present it to somebody, you can make the, put it onto a cell phone, make the cell phone move around or a laptop, whatever kind of gives your, your work something interesting. So if you're like a, somebody who has to present projects to people, maybe you can consider to use this Rotato app to kind of, you know, make your project look a little bit more interesting. It definitely helps people get a little bit wild by this. So that's that's my picks. Awesome. Adi, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I was just going to say, we just can't seem to do picks without mentioning Rust. So love that. Uh, for a change, I'm not going to mention Rust. I have got a personal pick for the first time. I was surprised last week just to see the how low the auto loan rates are. So if anyone is thinking about buying a car in the U.S., like buy one. I got one for like 2.4%, which is crazy because last year they were like oh, over 4%. But yeah, buy a car. And I came across this awesome, uh, I guess, language, a validator constraint language called Q. It is uh, to validate uh, and like define a schema based on JSON. So if you have, for example, like a lot of data represented in JSON and you want to infer their type when you load up the JSON, this language will do that. Or the other way around, generate data from type. Great, for example, if you have a lot of tests, a lot of test data, but don't have API documentation, you can generate type documentation based on a JSON data. And whatever, many use cases, I once I found this, I was like, my brain was going like a million miles a minute. So I wanted to share this as well. But that's it for my, uh, did, did I mention the name? It's Q. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's it for my picks. Awesome. I'm going to throw in a few picks. Uh, the first one is, so part of my daily routine is I listen to a book. So, you know, I get up, I read scriptures and listen to a talk from church leaders. And then I read a book or I usually listen to the book on Audible. And the book that I've been listening to lately is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And oh man, I am really, really digging this book. I'm about a quarter of the way through it. Um, but yeah, I can't put it down. I, I'm just, I'm really, really into it. So I'm going to pick that. And then another pick that I have. So I, I went down, it's, I've kind of got hit or miss relationship with uh, Home Depot. Sometimes you go over there and you ask them for help and you don't get the most helpful people. And sometimes you walk in and you definitely run into the right person. So uh, I ran down there because uh, my neighbor was getting rid of some desks that were kind of perfect for my office. And so I picked them up. And anyway, some of the bolts that hold it together were missing. And I had to pull it apart in order to get it into my office. So anyway, it was partially pulled apart. And so some of the bolts were missing. Anyway, I went down there and uh, I just showed the guy at Home Depot the bolts that I was looking for. And he found me the right bolts, the lock, the lock washers and the, uh, what do they call them? The regular washers. Anyway, so yeah, he just found everything for me right away. So I'm going to shout out about that because yeah, the guy at Home Depot was terrific. So Home Depot is my other pick. Yiming, do you have some picks? Some stuff you want to shout out about? Yeah, I will just pick my objects library. So I'm still working on it, but I think it's a better solution for defining 
encapsulated data structures in Elixir and also define a shared interface just like protocols in Elixir. Uh, I will just pick that. Awesome. And if people want to find you online or connect with you through, I don't know, Twitter, GitHub, things like that, where do they find you? Yeah, I'm mostly on Twitter and uh, you can find me at DSDSHCYN. And, uh, that's not pronounceable. I regret that. <laughs> It's all good. Yeah, just put that in the chat. We'll make sure it winds up in the show notes. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Thank you all for coming. And until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.